ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, it finally happened. After eight plus years of waiting, the first Bitcoin ETF finally made its debut today. This is the real thing. It's live and trading. It's not a figment of my imagination. Now, this wasn't exactly what investors were hoping for. The SEC is only allowing futures-based Bitcoin ETFs at this point, not spot products. But it is a start. And congratulations to ProShares for being the uh, first out of the gate on this. They've been working on a Bitcoin ETF for a long time. I'll be joined momentarily by Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. We are going to break down everything that's happened with this. It's been a nonstop news flow. So we'll try to offer a quick rundown here and then also discuss how investors and advisors might approach these ETFs. Uh, Tom may also have to let me take a little victory lap because one of my 2021 predictions has hit. So everyone has to let me bask in the glory at least a little bit. Now, also joining me this week will be Zhang Bui, head of U.S. exchange traded products at NASDAQ. And as it turns out, the Valkyrie Bitcoin ETF is listing on NASDAQ potentially tomorrow. So you better believe we'll be talking about that. And then obviously, Zhang sits in a very unique position in the ETF space because she has a front row seat to everything that's going on. So we'll talk about that. We'll discuss NASDAQ's role in supporting ETF growth and innovation, and also just talk more broadly about what Zhang is seeing across the ETF space right now. Really looking forward to that. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Ryan Kruger, co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions, who back in May, they launched the Freedom Day Dividend ETF, ticker MBOX, M-B-O-X. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, I know a lot of new ETFs come to market, and sometimes the stories behind these ETFs all start running together. They start sounding the same. The backstory on this ETF and why Ryan launched it is definitely unique, and it's one that I think you'll really enjoy. And I'll go out on a limb and say there may not be a nicer person involved in ETFs now than Ryan. So be sure to stick around for that. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Nate, good morning. Big day. Excited for the conversation. It's a huge day. And, you know, it's so funny because everyone is asking me whether I've like popped champagne or whatever with a ProShares Bitcoin Futures ETF launching. And I'll be honest, I'm too tired. I, I was gassed after tracking all of this last week, and it doesn't look like things are slowing down this week either. No, it sure doesn't, Nate. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm the data guy. And I ran a little bit of data related to your tweeting activity and said, <laughs> you know that on average over the last 18 months, you've tweeted every eight minutes about a Bitcoin ETF, <laughs> um, and w which I found to be a phenomenal, um, you know, quantity. Of, no, I'm just kidding, Nate. But uh, you, you've been all over this story. I can't wait to drill into it to, uh, with you. And, and so I'm, I'm going to hold back on sending you the Sriracha that I had picked out for the, the dollar bill that you may have had to eat this year based on the, the prediction, but I'm, uh, I'm excited. So um, why don't you set the table for Yeah, us? yeah, and let's do that. Drill in. Let, let me bring everyone up to speed. So um, obviously today, the first ever Bitcoin ETF began trading. Again, it's the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker symbol B-I-T-O. Now, we also expect the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF to list sometime soon, again, potentially tomorrow. Um, and also, it's possible the Vanek Bitcoin Strategy ETF list in, I would say, the next week or so. Now, interestingly, Invesco pulled their Bitcoin futures ETF filing yesterday, even though they looked like they were on track to be approved this week and, and could have started trading this week. But all of these are futures-based products. They hold CME-traded Bitcoin futures. And a, a couple of noteworthy items that I'll add. Uh, first, the SEC is not allowing these products to hold Canadian Bitcoin ETFs, which I personally think they should have. I, I think those could have been a uh, release valve if things got too crazy in the futures market, but the SEC didn't like that. Also, the fee on uh, BITO is 95 basis points. And, you know, look, that, that's more than half of what, uh, for instance, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is. But I'll just say now there's no way fees are staying that high on these ETFs. I think costs are going to come way down. And then lastly, I'll note that uh, we don't just have Bitcoin futures ETFs now, but Bitcoin futures can also be held in other ETFs. So as a matter of fact, uh, yesterday, Wisdom Tree was actually the first ETF to hold Bitcoin futures with uh, GCC, which is the Wisdom Tree Enhanced Commodity Strategy Fund. They have a lot like a 3% allocation of Bitcoin futures in that. And I would certainly expect other commodity type ETFs to do the same. So that's the current lay of the land. I guess I'll also add that in terms of a 
physical or spot-based Bitcoin ETF. The SEC does have to make a decision on the VanEck Bitcoin ETF in November, which that should provide some insight into where the SEC currently stands on that and their thinking. And it's interesting because just this morning we saw a filing uh, uh, from Grayscale. They filed the 19B, yeah, 19B4, the NYSE filed it on their behalf to list that product. And last week, Bitwise filed for a physical uh, Bitcoin ETF. So obviously a lot going on. I guess I'll pause there. Anything that you would add to any of that, Tom? No, what I'd add, Nate, and look forward to coming at it from this angle, is is I do think that it is a pretty monumental day um, for the world of specifically financial advisors. And and so if you think about 40% of American wealth is controlled through a, a financial advisor, the accessibility to the new asset class within the ETF wrapper without getting into the nuance of, of a futures-based versus spot-based, that's a really, really big deal um, from, from an evolution standpoint and an accessibility standpoint. And I think that, uh, you know, what we've learned over the last 25-plus years in the world of ETFs is that it's ingrained in the DNA of the industry pushed by advisors who are pushed by their clients to continually evolve and, and adapt and, and allow access to, to areas of the market um, via the most effect, uh, efficient and effective structure possible. And I think that this is a really important milestone along the way and, and a continuation of that arc. So, um, you know, uh, excited for uh, a whole new uh, way in which advisors and, and therefore their clients can access the market. Um, is it a perfect product for everyone? It, it may not be, but there's a, but, but choice is, is, is incredibly important. And I think that uh, it's undeniable that there's, there's more choice now today than there was yesterday. And I think that that's, that's really um, a great thing for the industry. I think that's really well said. This continues the tradition of innovation in the ETF space. And I know that sounds a bit cliche, but that has been the case over the past nearly 30 years since ETFs first came to market. And this is just a continuation of that. One thing that I, I will mention, I know you said not getting into the nuances of these products. They are futures based. I do think it's important to mention that these futures-based Bitcoin ETFs are not going to track the spot price of Bitcoin perfectly. And while we're all excited that these launched, I just don't want that to get lost. And the simple reason why these won't track perfectly is because these futures contracts in the ETF have to be rolled every month. So if an ETF owns, say, November Bitcoin futures, those have an expiration date. The ETF has to sell those futures before that expiration date and buy December futures to maintain Bitcoin exposure. The problem is the December futures cost more than the uh, November futures. And if you look further out, the January futures cost more than the December futures. This is called contango. So the out months of futures contracts cost more than the near months. And as you get close to expiration, obviously the uh, price of the futures contracts converge to whatever the spot price of Bitcoin is. But Effectively, what this means is the ETF is constantly buying high and selling low, which isn't exactly ideal. That creates a negative performance drag. It's what's called a negative roll yield. And this can work in reverse as well if the futures curve is in what's called backwardation. But I I just want to make sure to put that out there. Again, we're all very excited, but I don't want to come across as a cheerleader. This is a problem with futures-based ETFs. But, um, Tom, going back to your point in terms of advisor uh, usage here and, and sort of their perception, 
Anytime you join me on the podcast, we do always like to look through this lens of ETF trends and ETF database website traffic and data and analytics that you have. And we've used that to glean insight into what investors and advisors are actually doing and, and thinking about when it comes to their portfolios. And obviously, we haven't had Bitcoin ETFs on the market. So clearly, you don't have any data on that. I'm very fascinated to see what that data looks like as these products are trading, but you don't have that now. However, you do still have data that is highly relevant here because you've conducted an in-depth survey of advisors with Bitwise on crypto. I know you and I have also talked about uh, blockchain e ETF data in the past. I just thought I'd open this up to you. I mean, wh what do you have for us this week in terms of that data? Yeah, well, and Nate, thanks for the, the clarification. And, and I, I should have said that I'm maybe not the right person to go into the nuance and the detail. I think it's incredibly important that advisors and anyone investing in, in any ETF understands is the pro what is the product's objective and how does it achieve that objective? And, and in retrospect and going forward, is it is it doing what it, it was um, purported to be doing? And, and so this, this product falls squarely within um, that same sort of set of framework where I think that that educational process, I, I, I could only imagine that our friends, uh, you know, Caleb Silver and the group over at Investopedia are getting extreme traffic on terms like backwardation and contango over the last week. Because to your point, Nate, understanding role yield and all the nuance of what's embedded within the future structure is incredibly important. So I, I absolutely don't want to gloss over that. So before we get into any of the bitwise data or any of our behavioral data, I, I do want to, you know, thinking about um, the articulation of, of kind of what the trajectory of this means. And if you think about a really easy X, Y axis chart, you've got time on the, on, on the bottom on the X and you've got, accessibility and choice on, on your y-axis what this does is, is you mentioned the last 30 years is i i plot today as an up and to the right movement as it re relates to the world of advisors and investors they've now got more access and more choice than, than we did yesterday and i think that that's that's something to be heralded and, and ultimately it's something that we want to continue to be um pushing forward so that people um, have other ways of, of, of choice and other ways of access. So that, that's, that's one point to make. And as it relates to advisors and, and what we're seeing and what we're hearing is that um, we've talked on the podcast before, Nate, about um, in 2020 versus the first half of 20, uh, uh, sorry, in 2021 versus the first half of 2020, we saw almost a 10x in interest in in and around not in to your point there's no um bitcoin etf specific ticker pages for example but around that content ecosystem we saw a 10x increase in advisor engagement in the first half of 2021 versus the first half of 2020. so the demand here for education and understanding is absolutely undeniable and then, and moreover, um, as we've been conducting a survey with the, you know, our friends and, and partners at Bitwise for the last number of years, we've seen this uh, continued interest and growing interest from the advisor community. Like, for example, in the most recent survey, and, and so I'm pulling the altitude up a little bit here, Nate, I'm, I'm not getting into what happened this week or this quarter, it's more of what's been happening over a number of years and what does that tell us about uh, 
um, advisor interest in the market. So th- this survey data is as, as of January 2021, and 81% of all advisors are receiving interest in crypto from their clients, which is up from 76% in 2020. And we surveyed almost a thousand advisors here, Nate, 994 to be exact. So I think that um, it, it's absolutely top of mind for a lot of people and for advisors to be able to articulate their strategy as it relates to the approach um, related to this, you know, burgeoning asset class is, is critical for them to have good answers for their clients because clients are certainly asking the question. 81% of them are asking their advisors about this. Yeah, and I'll just jump in there and say, uh, you can make me 995 in that survey. We get a ton of questions from clients on crypto, I would say, especially from younger investors. And what I've always said here is, even if as an advisor, you don't believe in crypto, you're not a fan of crypto, you you think it's going to go to zero, whatever the case, you have to be prepared to have a conversation with clients around that. Because if they call you and you're unable to speak intelligently to it, that's going to be a problem for you. And so I've always come back and said, even if you don't believe in crypto, you have to be educated on the space. And I think that, you know, that data supports that. That many advisors receiving questions, you have to be educated. Well, that's absolutely right, Nate. And, and then that, that speaks to the next point about accessibility. And, and we now have something on platform, which, you know, that 40% of the wealth of America controlled by financial advisors they now have a one-click solution, all within the same, um, you know, guardrails of all of the other ways in which they're investing in client assets, and that's a big deal because, in the same January 2021 survey, 76% of advisors thought that their clients were investing outside of their traditional asset allocation and relationship with their advisor into the crypto market. And so, if you think about, so three quarters of advisors were saying. My clients are investing outside here. And really what that was, was, um, you know, a couple things. One, there wasn't an easy way to do it. And, and again, I'm not um, suggesting that, you know, BITO or any of the other products slated for the next week or so is the exact right way to do it. It may or may not be, depending on the situation. Um, but the reality is to bring it closer to the core of your portfolio allocation and to have it on platform. Where you, where you, you meant you had a key word there, Nate, the conversation. As an advisor, I'm sure you want to bring that into the conversation. You want to treat it like an asset class. You want to talk about it like fixed income, like commodities, like equities. And, it, and, and you, and you can do that in a way where it's more holistic. And then that, you know, probably develops some discipline in the conversation around the approach and, and then around the reporting and around the cadence of um, rebalancing and all of these tools that are core to an advisor's relationship with their clients being on platform versus, you know, 76% of advisors saying this is happening off platform. And it's kind of a bit of a rogue, you know, uh, people are doing, doing it however they may be doing it. It's unbeknownst to the advisor. I think that consolidation of information into the advisor's world, I think is a positive. It's huge. And you mentioned rebalancing and and sort of the strategic approach here. When you're talking about high volatility assets like Bitcoin, position sizing in a portfolio and rebalancing are absolutely critical. 
And we have data going back to the inception of Bitcoin. If you had owned a very small allocation of Bitcoin and rebalanced in a very disciplined manner, it has been added in terms of the risk-adjusted returns to a portfolio. But to what you're saying, if advisors don't have visibility to that at all, that's a real problem. Now, there are companies out there like OnRamp who are trying to solve this problem, but certainly an ETF can help here. It can offer that visibility and allow an advisor to to handle the position sizing and rebalancing. That's absolutely right, Nate. And and as you mentioned, there there um, more access is better. And and folks, you know, the folks at OnRamp are doing a great job, as are many others, and, and who have blazed the trail in accessibility to this market. And they should be, um, you know, commended for that. Interestingly, from an advisor perspective, and, and again, this is about a thousand advisors in January 2021. We asked them what the preferred preferred vehicle was. Uh, to invest in, in the crypto market, um, you know, specifically to get exposure to Bitcoin. And 64% of respondents suggested that the ETF wrapper was their number one uh, preferred method of accessing the market, followed second by owning coins directly at 16%. So a huge drop off in, in the flavor through which they were desirous of accessing this market. And, and so it, it uh, you know, we mentioned ETFs have been around for, for 30 years. They've, they've stood the test of time time and, uh, you know, market volatility and, and all these sorts of things. I think those are long in the rear view from a structural standpoint. And advisors have signaled, you know, through this survey data that that's really the way that they want to get access here. Um, and so that's kind of interesting as we think about the coming months and quarters in, in the proliferation of ways that the ETF wrapper can access the market. Um, you know, right today, we've got a futures-based option, but, you know, does that foretell uh, something in the future as it relates to uh, the physically, you know, using air quotes back um, product in the coming, you know, months or quarters or, or, or maybe years? I'm not sure. Yeah. And again, the key there is that an ETF fits into the existing workflow of an advisor, that the ETF can be custodied, where they custody all their other assets, all the reportings consolidated. Those are the types of things that advisors want. Now, I do think at some point, all of the major brokerages, uh, Schwab, Fidelity, uh, et cetera, will offer direct crypto custody and trading. And at that point, maybe that reduces the use case for a standalone uh, you know, Bitcoin ETF. I, I do think there will be a need for actively managed crypto ETFs or index-based ETFs, but that's down the road. But uh, again, to your point of, of advisors preferring crypto in an ETF package, that makes sense to me in, with the current lay of the land. Yeah, and, and then Nate, so we asked the, this advisor community about um, what's attracting them to gaining exposure to the crypto market and client portfolios. And, and this might be an interesting spot um, because I, I think you, you may have a viewpoint here as it relates to your, um, your practice. And, and so 54%, 54% of respondents mentioned what you just talked about was uh, it's absolutely a volatile asset class. There's, that's undeniable. You know, the data, the, the data shows that very, very clearly. But the low or uncorrelated returns with other asset class classes, 54% of the advisor community suggested that was the number one reason that they were examining this market and, and either investing in it in client portfolios or looking at investing in it in client portfolios. And, and we've talked about some other asset classes in, in the past where we've got this uncorrelated 
um, profile. And, and how do how, how how would you know if you if you mentioned nine ninety five? How would you answer that and, and use that within your practice? Yeah, see, I mean that's interesting. And you may recall you and I talked a little bit about this maybe a month or so ago, but. We have actually historically owned a small physical gold ETF position in our core por- uh, portfolios. And the reason for that is we view it as a low or uncorrelated hedge, right? Gold marches to the beat of its own drummer. And we, we like that. We like those characteristics in a portfolio. But the funny thing is, our younger clients will always ask, well, why do you own gold? Why don't you own crypto? And obviously the answer is, well, there hasn't been a great way for us to do that via traditional custodians, given the point I was speaking to earlier. But we do view Bitcoin as somewhat similar to gold. It is an uncorrelated asset. And as I mentioned earlier, again, the fact is, if an investor had owned a small allocation of Bitcoin and been very disciplined around rebalancing, it would have improved a diversified portfolio's risk-adjusted returns. Now, will that happen moving forward? Well, I don't think anybody knows for sure. But if we look at the data we have thus far, that's what it shows. And so, again, I would fit right into that survey in that I do think we view it as offering lower uncorrelated returns. And it's funny because everybody likes to think of Bitcoin as this high-flying asset class, and certainly at times it has been that. But it's the, it's the volatility of Bitcoin where if you are disciplined around rebalancing and you manage your position size properly, it can be additive to a portfolio. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Nate. And, and we even did a recent webcast survey just as of 30 days ago, and 86% of um, the respondents said yes when asked, can Bitcoin be a diversifier in your portfolio? So a bit of a, a different vector coming at the same sort of um, you know, portfolio uh, balance or diversifier, diversify uncorrelated um, element. But again, it just kind of speaks to that point about where it fits within this broader portfolio context and then giving advisors the tools to to look at it as a holistic as opposed to um, something that lives outside of that that traditional construct of of portfolio allocation so um, just another data point to bring bring to the conversation well tom we're going to have to leave it there Uh, great stuff today i can't wait for the rest of this week it's going to be wild the stuff is uh, so much fun i I just love it and and by the way shameless plug i do want to mention that etf and crypto expert matt hogan of bitwise investments will be joining me on next week's podcast so i'm sure we'll continue to talk about all this but tom thank you for joining me nate thanks so much have a great day we'll talk to you soon that was tom hendrickson president of etf trends and etf database This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com slash ETFs to learn more.
My next guest is Zhang Bui, head of U.S. exchange-traded products at NASDAQ, who currently lists over 400 exchange-traded products with more than $1 trillion in assets. And Zhang is responsible for overseeing NASDAQ's entire ETP business. Prior to NASDAQ, Zhang was director of listings at SIBO Global Markets. She was also at the New York Stock Exchange prior to that. And she's now on the line with me from New York. Zhang, a pleasure connecting. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thank you for having me. And I love the the intro music. It's a nice uh, amp up for today's exciting day. That's right. It is an exciting (laughs) day. And I have to ask you, how has your past few weeks been with everything going on with Bitcoin ETFs? Yeah, it's definitely been a lot of talk around Bitcoin products, Bitcoin futures. How are we going to support the launch? How's the first day of trading going to look? So, you know, it's it's a milestone day. So congratulations to the ProShares team to, you know, getting us to this, uh, to the launch of the first Bitcoin related uh, ETF in the market. Well, I know NASDAQ is working with Valkyrie on listing a Bitcoin ETF. I'm not sure uh, what you're able to speak to at this point. Uh, are you able to offer any insight into that process, perhaps how long you've been working on it and, and maybe what the next step is? We've been working with them for a long time. They've been a great partner for us, the Valkyrie team. It's a fantastic team filled with ETF veterans, but also Bitcoin natives that have been involved in so many different aspects of the digital asset world. So, you know, we're working closely with them. They're, they they filed a couple of days after ProShare. So their listing is upcoming as well. So we're, you know, we're just working closely with uh, Valkyrie in order to just prepare for the product and, you know, all the different participants within the industry to be ready to support the product when it comes to market. Yeah. And on that note, you know, this Valkyrie ETF, this actually provides a nice segue. And we can certainly come back and talk more about that ETF later if you'd like. Uh, I also want to talk about broader innovation in ETFs. But Let's back up here. Explain for us NASDAQ's role in the ETF ecosystem. Like, how exactly did you work with someone like Valkyrie, and and what's the process of supporting them moving forward? Yeah, so NASDAQ is an ETF listing exchange. Um, So we we partner with issuers and market makers and law firms and across the whole ETF ecosystem. And Valkyrie and other issuers choose NASDAQ as their partner because our brands align so well with their issuers and promoting innovation and investing for the future. So we're aligned with issuers in our commitment to advance key trends that are shifting the investment landscape and digital assets and crypto is one of them, but we're involved in so many different aspects of the ETF ecosystem. We also have a very robust index business that also is licensed, is supporting a lot of the ETF benchmarks of those products. So we support issuers throughout the life cycle of an ETF. And we really think of our team as an extension of the issuers team. We're their partner throughout the life of the fund, uh, whether it's product development, guidance on regulatory paths, market-making conversation and liquidity programs and liquidity support, and then marketing and PR support once the product is launched through our vast channel. So all coming together, it's really a, a key reason why you know, we were able to achieve the, you know, the over 400 listings we have, uh, over a trillion in assets from all of our issuers. So you know, we're really excited about partnering with issuers on new product types like these Bitcoin ones that are coming to market. Zhang, I always like to cover the basics on this podcast. And besides offering that support that you just mentioned to ETF issuers, what exactly does it mean for an ETF to list on a venue? Because I think the average person, they go in and buy, I don't know, 100 shares of an ETF on E-Trade or wherever, and they're not necessarily thinking about where that ETF is listed, right? It doesn't matter to them, at least on the face of things. So if an ETF is listed on NASDAQ, what, what, what does that mean in the literal sense? 
Yeah, so to be listed on the exchange, an ETF or any security that is exchange listed has to meet a specific set of listing requirements. Um, so it really depends on the, the security type itself, and we have a you know dedicated team that is going to be working closely with the issuer to be able to navigate you know our existing listing rules, where are cases where we do need to go with the regulators, and help them really guide through that that initial listing process. Um, once the ETF is listed, the ETF the exchange maintains fair and orderly markets in the ETF by monitoring trades, events that are happening. Um, there's also a set of continued listing standards that the ETF has to continue to meet in order to remain listed. Uh, but the exchange traded part is really one of the biggest appeals of ETFs. Investor can buy and sell them during the trading day. So it's really important that we're focused on promoting liquidity and market quality in our listed ETFs. And obviously, there are other venues ETF issuers can list on. So what do you view as some key points of differentiation at NASDAQ? Yeah, for us, you know, one of the biggest key differentiators for us is you know, our high-touch service. Um, you know, we're very focused being the extension of our issuer's team. We don't believe in a one-size-fits-all support for issuers, so we have open lines of communication to issuers to really understand their need, what is their product strategy, what is their distribution strategy, so we can really tailor our support to that. And then, you know, then that, that's really where the key focus of our listening program. And with that, we're also, you know, we're, um, our technology is very important. Exchanges at the end of the day are technology companies. So we're focused on the resiliency and the uptime of our, of our markets. Um, and, you know, we're proud to have, you know, best in class technology when it comes to exchanges. And with that, it comes market quality. Um, liquidity of an ETF matters because it impacts the investor's trading costs and speed of execution. So we're focused on building out liquidity programs to improve market quality in our listed ETFs. And then the last piece is really about marketing distribution. How can we uh, support issuers, really amplify their reach, let's leverage all that NASDAQ has to offer and our vast channels to really able to, for our clients to meet, to reach their end clients. With that goal of increasing market liquidity and quality, I know you have a program, it's called the NASDAQ Designated Liquidity Provider Program, DLP. How is that designed? Yeah, so uh, like you said, um, Exchange like NASDAQ has ETF-specific programs to further inside market makers to improve market quality and liquidity for our listed ETFs. And we just recently enhanced our program in May, um, and our program features a primary designated liquidity provider and also an option to add a secondary designated liquidity provider to really be able to create that ecosystem of liquidity support for an ETF. And our market makers that are designated as DLPs have quoting obligations that are aimed to promote better market quality, especially for new and incubating ETFs. And since we've enhanced the program in May, we've seen positive results about um, market makers becoming more engaged. We're seeing better transparency and price discovery while reducing transaction costs for the investor. This may sound like a bit of an odd question, but... How important is liquidity at the end of the day? Like, like I know poor trading execution can obviously directly impact returns, so that's clearly important. But I'm thinking more from the ETF issuer's perspective. Like, if an ETF isn't trading well, what are the ramifications of that? And perhaps you can offer a few examples here, whether positive or negative. You don't have to name tickers, but maybe talk about instances where there was real impact to ETF issuers. Yeah, I mean, greater liquidity means an investor can buy or sell an ETF quickly and efficiently without impacting its price. So issuers are very focused in making sure that their investor receives the best execution possible. They're having efficient executions. Um, and because with 
with great trade with seamless trading experience, it increases adoption for for that product, but also for the overall structure. I mean, I think the events of the uh, the ETF's resiliency throughout the volatility of March and April was really a great testament to that in terms of increasing adoption to to ETFs. ETFs performed as designed during that time frame. We saw bid-ask spreads in ETF widen, but it was in line with the market. And in many instances, it was still cheaper to trade the ETF during this time than the basket of securities. And this was especially the case for fixed income ETFs when the bond market liquidity deteriorated during this time frame, the market turned to ETF as a source of transparency and liquidity. And market makers and liquidity providers continue to stay engaged throughout this time of market stress. So it really showed the ETF ecosystem functioning efficiently throughout the volatility and the surging volume. So I mean, since then, you've really seen an increased adoption in ETFs overall. 2020, as you, everyone knows, was a record year for ETF inflows. And 2021, we've already broken that record. So it's an exciting times ahead for the ETF space. Have you seen examples, though, in the past, and not necessarily at NASDAQ, where poor trading experiences in an ETF has really been detrimental to an ETF's growth, or vice versa, where really positive trading experiences, high liquidity, great quality, has helped improve the prospects of an ETF? Yeah, I mean, investors look at the tradability of an ETF whenever they're evaluating products. So they 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 ask spreads or, you know, the average cost for trading costs for investors, something that they look at. So if you have great uh, liquidity on screen and investors have confidence that they can um, enter and exit the ETF quickly and efficiently, that gives them more trust into the product. And it definitely is something that um, is evaluated across ETFs. You know, these are data points that we, uh, the issue provide on their website because they understand that that's something that um, investors do evaluate as they're they're looking at um, investment products. Okay, so we started our conversation by talking about Bitcoin ETFs, a favorite topic of mine. That's obviously another (laughs) step forward in ETF innovation. I'm curious, what are some other areas of uh, innovation you're seeing? Like, what are some areas that have you excited about the future of ETFs? Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about Bitcoin and it continues to be, you know, a very hot topic. And Bitcoin futures product is really a starting point as investors continue to gain access to the crypto market through the uh, efficient ETF wrapper issuers and continue to innovate and work towards solving these investors' needs. And so we're excited to collaborate across the industry to navigate this right regulatory path. So I anticipate Bitcoin or crypto-related ETFs to continue to be uh, an area for ETF innovations. You know, other areas we expect growth in terms of product development is, you know, thematic ETFs. You know, they've been very popular. You know, the, the more focus-based um, ETFs has been a very hot theme. Uh, we see derivative-based ETFs that are used as risk management tools for income generation. Um, fixed income ETF continues to, to, to get demand, and it's still early innings for active management. So, you know, like, um, with recent regulatory changes around allowing for semi-transparent ETFs, we, so I, I would expect that to be an area of continued innovation and growth. And then also, finally, ESG. Um, We've seen a surge in investor interest and issuers are responding to this demand by launching more ESG and sustainability-focused ETFs. So I expect um, ESG integration to many of the major benchmarks. In fact, we're working with Invesco right now on the upcoming launches for ESG versions of the NASDAQ 100 and NASDAQ NextGen ETF, uh, NextGen 100 ETF. So, you know, um, a lot of 
the ETF space is always very ever-evolving and keeps it very exciting and everyone on their toes. So um, I'm excited for what's to come. And Zhang, obviously, you're in a very unique position in that you have a front row seat to everything going on in the world of ETFs. What in your mind ultimately makes for a successful ETF? Because we all know how competitive the space is. Uh, I think it's only going to grow more competitive, which is definitely saying something, by the way. But what do you think are some keys to success? Yeah, like you said, it's a very competitive market. We're seeing record number of new launches each year. We're seeing a lot of new entrances to the space. So differentiation for the product is really important. So from a product development standpoint, like understanding the demand for the investment objective or the product is very important. Um, So that's why one of the things we see the surge in ESG and concentrate thematic demand. So we've seen a heightened number of product coming to market for that. Um, so, you know, having that product idea and understanding like who your target audience and what the demand for that product is, you know, is key. And then with that understanding, having a very clear sales and distribution plan. So I, I think we've talked in the past about ETFs are sold and not bought, bought. So you need dedicated sales and distribution. And this is something that your partners within the industry would really look to understand and help you support. Because um, they have to, you know, your target client on the day one is very different than your target client. You know, one or two years into the listing, it could be drastically different, and the sales and distribution plan has to change accordingly to that. Um, and marketing co- plays a big role into that sales and distribution. It's a key aspect for a new ETF coming to market. And NASDAQ supports issuers in doing so by really leveraging NASDAQ's broad organic reach to amplify the fund's visibility. Uh, We also partner with issuers to create tangible content and looking for the right channels to distribute it through to really maximize impact and help issuers grow assets. And then we we talked before about the importance of liquidity and quality markets and how that can really help the fund really thrive and promote adoption. So, you know, we, we cater to issuers of all size. So we're, it, that's why communications with the issuer is really important, understanding their plans and being, and working with them in tandem is very important. So we tailor our support to our issuer's need and provide them support to help their product flourish and really hit certain AUM milestones that are really meaningful in the growth of the ETF. About a minute left here. What about just education, like ETF education of of retail investors? I know education has been a huge focus for NASDAQ. What are some things that you're doing to help promote ETF education overall? Yeah, financial education is definitely a priority for NASDAQ. We launched our education initiative that is geared towards retail called Smart Investing to really help investors understand the capital markets. And ETFs are a big part of that series. So for those new to ETF, we're, we're providing education on the benefits of ETFs or best practices for trading ETFs as people are entering the ecosystem. Uh, we are, our chief economist also writes a weekly blog that goes out to the industry on the markets and covers regulatory proposal or market structure changes that would impact ETFs to keep people informed on the latest changes. Um, and then from a more product-specific side, we work with issuers on content co-creation as it relates to education, especially for new product type or asset classes. And you know, we're focused on adapting the education content uh, on how audience are getting their, their information and make sure that we're using the right channels to be able to reach, um, to, to amplify and really promote this education content. 
Well, Zhang, again, just a pleasure connecting. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I'm fascinated to continue watching this Bitcoin ETF race. I know it's going to keep you busy uh, for the foreseeable future, but thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was Zhang Bui, head of U.S. exchange-traded products at NASDAQ. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Ryan Kruger, co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions, who's a registered investment advisory firm managing approximately $450 million. And back in May, they launched the Freedom Day Dividend ETF, ticker MBOX, M-B-O-X. And Ryan is now on the line with me from Houston. Ryan, so great to finally connect. Thanks for joining me. I'm honored to be here, Nate. Well, I want to start by having you describe this concept of Freedom Day. We'll get to the uh, ETF in a minute, but I absolutely love this concept you develop. Do you want to explain what uh, Freedom Day means? Well, I can't take credit for the concept. I do take good notes, and I'm fortunate to work for people. I've just seen it. it it's, it's real math and, and real lives, which is why I get excited about this work. Freedom Day is the day when multiple streams of income, and I'm talking free cash flow, not withdrawals of hope for appreciation or principal, exceed the cost of living for an investor and a family who's depending on that investor, perhaps. And living, to me, is living well, so it must include annual pay raises, in addition, that need to far exceed inflation. So to accomplish that goal, rising dividends have a track record unlike any we found in over two centuries. Um, and freedom, to me, is not just the math, but what it can create for the people that are relying on us. So freedom from worrying, um, freedom from distractions, and it turns a lot of questions about the stock market completely upside down at that point. Yeah, and as I understand it, you believe that some of the traditional concepts of retirement planning focus on the wrong things at, at times, such as age or a certain withdrawal percentage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I just think advisors' biggest challenge is, is going to be finding sustainable income streams that are rising. And I don't view it as a negative or what's wrong. And I certainly do think there are some assumptions that are severely flawed that simple math would challenge. But I, I just view it as more inspiring to that at any age, when that math lines up, I don't want to plan for a traditional 30-year retirement to begin with. And some of our greatest innovations are going to cost a whole heck of a lot more for investors. And I want the freedom to be able to spend on that. Um, so, yeah, it, it's inspiring work. And I, I dare say freedom is also a little bit healthier way to live in than a traditional retirement plan to stop working and do nothing. I want to be able to stop 
and do anything. And obviously, MBOX, the ticker on your ETF, this ties into to this concept that obviously stands for these dividend checks showing up in the mailbox, uh, which, by the way, mailbox also happens to be your logo on this ETF. I'm curious, is there a backstory here or was this just the natural next step in the evolution of marketing of the Freedom Day concept, check showing up well, in your mailbox? Well, I, I hope <laughs> it's not just an old-fashioned term for a dirt poor farming family in the middle of Texas. Um, I, I, I assume that some people still have some some old metal mailboxes where they like to receive dividend checks, but it, it really goes back from a variety of different investments, what people could always count on receiving in their hands to know what is real and repeatable. And in my world, the further we get away from some of those vintage truths, the worse off and more confused investors may be. So mailbox money to me is getting paid every quarter. It is a reflection of what is already happening with clear evidence. We talk about evidence-based investing. I don't know a better way than to be able to hold it while everybody else is going to predict what might happen. So mailbox money and dividends is free cash flow rather than projections. And the idea that and we, we do not have a, a marketing department at all, and that drawing of it was the creation of an individual who trusts us and who we adore, who just said it feels like I'm in a neighborhood where I've been so used to that red flag every month sticking up with more bills going out. And if one day we could reverse that and it be green pointing down with more dividend checks arriving than bills going out, and for anybody who sees that, they might think it's goofy, but I've seen it happen. And it's inspiring work, and that's where – the mailbox money comes from. I love that. Such a fantastic story. Seriously, that, that is just an amazing backstory. Okay, so the ETF, the Freedom Day Dividend ETF, this is actively managed, approximately 50 holdings, uh, so pretty concentrated. Walk us through your investment process and what this ends up holding. So we have a, a repeatable five-step process. That None of this is new. The ETF is. We've been a separate account manager for my entire career and the ability to share this with more in an ETF is is thrilling. The process is all rules-based math. We start out, one, simply looking for businesses with operating advantages that are sustainable. Two, we look carefully at the quality of the dividend they are paying us. Where is it coming from? And it better be excess free cash flow. And then the growth rate the increases of those dividends tells us a lot about how the business views share owners. And then third, where we really roll up our sleeves and, and, and like to think that we're a little more nimble and where the concentration comes from is, Nate, we want to look at not just that advantage of the business or the growth of the dividend, but the direction of the advantage and the direction of growth. Four, we are very, very picky about price and valuation. So we will make all of these companies then compete to also underpay when we're lucky and find those candidates. And five, we're going to balance it. And while 50 seems overly concentrated to many, a lot of really good data that I've studied over 25 years makes me believe it's actually ideal and we can be more balanced and we'll be across all sectors, unlike a lot of dividend products or dividend investors where they'll be overly concentrated, where they can get the 
the biggest yield. I want to be balanced across all sectors at all times, and then we will put strict disciplines underneath each one of them. And to me, the stock market just always felt more like a stock tournament than something to buy in or believe in forever. So we make them compete, and we will rescore every stock in our universe every single month. Because to me, the, the beauty of selection is really the ability to eliminate underperforming businesses more than selecting. So we'll get it down to about 1% in um, just our mathematical profound respect for what is happening, not what we think should happen. And, and math doesn't care about my opinion either, which is, which is good. It keeps me honest. <laughs> well, just to be clear, in terms of the companies that you target, are you more interested in dividend yield? Like, does that weigh more? Or is it dividend growth? Is it both? Dividend growth. Um, I'm, I'm glad you clarified. I mean, dividend yield, current yield, is actually the very last thing we look at after those five steps are complete, believe it or not. And it's very different, I suppose, than a lot of dividend products that are looking for current yield. And out of curiosity, what is the CTF currently yielding? I know the S&P 500 is at, uh, let's say, 1.3%, 1 1.4%. What about inbox, even though I realize you're focusing more on dividend growth? Yep. So we're just starting. To, we'll, we'll distribute all dividends. Our current portfolio, the average forward 12-month dividend yield is going to be 2.6% as I look right now. Um, and what I look at, and, and I think you're, you're making a key distinction that I think everybody should consider, and there's not a right or wrong answer, but there are absolutely ways to get higher current yield from a lot of different investment sources, not just dividends. Almost without fail through my career, those have been the clues for more red flags than more long-term sustainable success. And so we're looking for dividend growth over yield. And I always share specific examples in our playbook that's open for advisors and investors. And I just use a couple of simple examples where we show a current 6% dividend yielder, Nate, that over the last 10 years, at the end of every year, that was a current yield. So not cherry picking or smoothing out math. So 6% at the end of every year, that's $60,000. Let's say if you invested a million dollars in a high current yield, that $60,000 at the end of the decade is paying you $70,000 at now current yield. This is an actual stock and we make the comparison because this current high yielder is much more popular than a lot of our holdings, much more institutionally owned, many more dividend funds own it, than our beautifully boring old 2% yielder that at the start of the same decade, the 2% every year on average was the ending current yield throughout that same decade. And that $20,000 current income at the beginning is now over $120,000. And that simple math is kind of hiding in plain sight for dividend growth with more pay raises over time than current yield. And that's assuming zero appreciation, no reinvestments, just the simple math of dividend growth. Well, let me ask you this. Obviously, we cover a lot of ETFs on this podcast. And as I know you're aware, there are many flavors of dividend ETFs on the market, including ones that do focus on dividend growth. What do you feel like is the differentiator here? Does it come down to the active management? Well, I'm I'm under no and thankfully I, I I abandoned any ego in the investment world a long time ago. So I'm under no illusion um, that this is anything but a long shot for an independent ETF with zero marketing department 
and it, it makes the, the, the David versus Goliath look like a, a fair matchup. So I, I made this very, very difficult on myself before even considering launching this. I have to be able to show a stakeholder of our ETF a fundamentally superior alternative, or I don't think we should be hired. So I embrace that competition. I know it's out there. And we'll compare the data and openly share better operating growth, bigger dividend growth, and each are accelerating. And if you look very carefully and objectively, regardless of the name or the size or the success or the distribution support they receive, a lot of the competitors are not accelerating. You'd be surprised how many big dividend payers aren't even growing operating revenues. So you have to ask yourself, where is it coming from? And it may be a lot of things that you don't want as a shareholder, like increased debt. So I know we have an advantage, um, but I don't expect a nickel of inflows. I know they're going to all be earned. And since it is my biggest position in my personal account, it is very, very easy for me to stay focused on playing the long. I actually enjoy um, communicating openly and directly with advisors and investors who often don't have access to portfolio managers of other funds. So um, it, it, that is not a burden to me. That is an absolute privilege. And I love sharing it because math don't lie. Okay, so given how you just laid that out, I have to ask you the cliche question. It's my job. I, I know you're a nice guy, so you'll uh, indulge me on this. You said you have no ego. We've all seen the data on active management. And I know there's some flaws with the, the calculations there, whether we're talking about the SPIBA scorecard or Morningstar's active passive barometer or some of the others. But I do think most people would agree it's very tough for active managers to consistently generate outperformance. Assuming that you believe that's true, how do you buck that trend? Yeah, I, I have a, a a very decidedly different way of framing that question, not not to avoid it, but to go right through it and, to me, to a more important one. I don't think it has to be one or the other. I, I am not here to say that active is better than passive. Um, I think too many of us in this industry in particular, but most of us as humans, have this severe bias of wanting to be right more than just get it right. So for me, active management is a simple, repeatable process where the upside is actually the exact opposite of, of wanting to be right, Nate. It's the ability to eliminate poor businesses, to not own, and then sell disciplines when we are wrong. And so math makes that clear. And that when the inputs change, so should the output. So to me, active is not even a choice. It is a process, and the markets are extremely dynamic, and they are changing all the time. And so what I love most about that math is it leaves no room for any prediction. So what I think is a more important question going forward, because let's face it, we have plenty of choices, active and passive. And the last thing I wanted to do was create another product for overstuffed shelves when people are wondering, should I invest for growth or income? And Yes, we think we have a very special formula that is time-tested for growth of income. And I do think that will be a very, very unique experience for an investor. But I think the, the bigger question that would help investors more is our industry needs to do a better job talking about how in the world we separate sacred money from speculative money. Because I think that's getting more people fouled up than making a wrong choice with active or passive. I think getting paid while you sleep, while everybody else worries about the market, is definitely my version of sacred money, and, and other folks will have their own version. 
but not having money that you're going to need to live on and eat on and provide income in the speculative side, I think will do wonders for investors. And, and what I've seen, and the most exciting upside of what some would view as a very, very conservative, beautifully boring portfolio of dividend raises, is that it actually unlocks, Nate, more aggressive speculative investments if you have those two worlds walled off. Then you can invest in any theme or ETF and listen to your show, and I'll give you and my man Jackson Wood some Bitcoin money over here and all these different things. <laughs> I think it unlocks that rather than this war of back and forth. So to me, the sacred money versus speculative is actually more under-discussed and underestimated as a direction than active or passive. One thing I'm curious about, in just a couple of minutes left here, how hard is it for you to maintain that sell discipline because you are in the weeds with these companies every day. It seems like it would be difficult not to fall in love with some of these companies. So how often are you confronted with a position that you just absolutely believe in with all your heart, every ounce of your body, you think it's the right holding. But again, going back to your point, the math, the financial side is telling you to sell. How difficult is that? For whatever odd reason for me and my DNA, extremely easy. I, I, I don't disagree. Everything you said is right. And they're not writing investment books and holding podcasts for a reason on my best advice would be to throw all the good ideas you have out the window and adopt one strict set of sell disciplines and you have a tremendous opportunity to outperform anything. Um, so it's just the math. And every single month, Nate, what excites me about sell disciplines, believe it or not, is not being confronted with how wrong I am often. It is that curiosity will always beat conviction. So I am constantly forcing myself to look also at new opportunities rather than dig my heels in and say the same company that 13 years ago was a great opportunity is the exact same math risk reward set up today. It isn't. So we just need to be honest about that. And so the math makes it real easy for me, but I don't disagree with you. About a minute left. The one thing we haven't touched on yet is really why you actually launched this ETF. So I know you partner with Wes Gray and the team over at Alpha Architect on this. Can you say a few words about that? And then again, just what the impetus was for the launch? Very simple to be able to share um, our best solution that it took us a long time in this business for 25 years. I want to share the solution to what I believe will be the biggest problem going forward for advisors and investors, the growth of income. And the guys at Alpha, as you know, um, I mean, I'm a slow mover. It took me two years of digging deep. And when you find some big, giant hearts and some huge nerds, that's a pretty good place for a business opportunity based on math for me. But then when you also are surrounded by a bunch of humans that you actually enjoy investing time with, um, boy, it was pure pleasure and makes my job and life a lot easier. And I am just overflowed with gratitude for what they do and everybody who trusts us. Well, Ryan, congratulations on the launch. I love stories like yours in the ETF space. Certainly wish you all the success. Thank you for joining me. I am grateful for you too. We both get excited about this work. We're, we're blessed to do. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was Ryan Kruger, co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. 
Next week, I'll be joined by Andrew Channon, CEO of Procure AM. We're going to talk about a couple of ETFs he's involved with and also just talk broader ETF trends. And then Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management, will go in-depth on everything happening with Bitcoin ETFs right now. Nobody closer to this than Matt. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>